Brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the podcast. College presidents have a lot on their minds these days as they navigate how the disruption of the last 18 months has impacted their day-to-day, as well as their strategic planning, which includes the work so many schools have been doing on college student mental health. Today's guest is Elizabeth Bradley, the president of Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. We are delighted to also note that President Bradley is a member of the Mary Christie Institute President's Council. Welcome, President Bradley. Thank you, Marjorie. I'm delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you and excited to get into the conversation. So when I first met you, you said, call me Betsy. Is that still okay? Absolutely. Okay. So Betsy, you have just co-authored a paper on mental health and college campuses, which I read last week, it is a terrific resource and provides great direction. I know it is not yet published, but I wanted to ask you a number of questions about it because I really do think it's a great overview for our audiences. But first I might ask you, What motivated you to publish this paper? My background is in public health, and I have done a lot of research on mental health really across the world, in other countries, also in the United States. So as an academic, I was already interested in this topic. Then COVID hit. And even before COVID, being a college president, you just have to be thinking about mental health. And I noted that in the literature, there really wasn't a synthesis of mental health at this particular age. And in this particular context, which is college. So I thought it was important to do. And and we're so glad you did it. Is this evidence that your interest and concern about student mental health, you know, yours and, and everyone's across the country has grown over the past few years? And has it become a higher priority for you as president? There's no question. It is one of the top priorities for me as a president. And I think most college presidents would tell you this. What keeps you awake at night? students' mental health. So let's talk a little bit about the paper. It provides a comprehensive assessment of the current situation in terms of the prevalence numbers, which are concerning, the barriers that exist generally and specifically for student population groups. So from a president's perspective, big question I know, but what concerns you the most given what you've just learned? I think what concerns me the most as a president is that students' mental health, if it's not attended to, can really hold them back from learning and from flourishing. And if our goal is to create a group of young adults who are able to go out into the world, thrive, flourish, help other people thrive and flourish, we have to be attending to their mental health. We don't spend the time on it. I don't think we can call ourselves the best colleges. We really need to attend to this piece. That actually veers into the next question I wanted to ask, which is really more about the environmental strategies. So you, you talk about college life as both a stressor for many students, but also an opportunity to use these years to really focus on student well-being. Now, particularly given your background in public health, this involves sort of population-based work and preventative work. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what strategies you think are working in that area. And also, are we thinking enough about that 
you know, as we we kind of think about tackling the college mental health crisis? Yeah, those are absolutely great, great questions. You know, what works and are we even thinking about that enough? So I think what happens on college campuses is there is a very heavy focus on what's going to happen in the classroom. And there's often less focus or less judicial focus, you know, really thinking carefully vigilantly about what's happening outside the classroom. But in truth, the classroom itself is not as, it doesn't take up as much time. When you really think about a college student, it's mostly how they manage their own lives, their intellectual lives, their emotional lives, their social lives. So taking a look at beyond the classroom is very important to bringing about a truly educated young adult who knows how to take care of themselves. So what does that mean? I think one of the first things it means is we have to take the stance of what I would call a public health approach to mental health, which is different than a clinical approach to mental health. A public health approach, as you intimated, Marjorie, says, well, we could create an environment in which people are able to have strong, healthy relationships, in which they're able to manage their stressors, in which they're able to have effective mental health. One has to think about the entire context, how we match people to roommates, how we manage athletic teams, how we create good governance and transparent leadership on campus, how we manage disagreements. If if you're having a strong intellectual discourse on campus, which we all do have and want to have, you're going to have feelings around that strong intellectual discourse. How are you managing that? How are you creating the words and the ability and the practices in the administration and the faculty and the student leaders to be able to say, yeah, that was a tough conversation. Let's let's stay at the table and talk more rather than that was a tough conversation. Now I feel totally isolated and like my mental health is not surviving. That attention to culture, that's what it is, is really culture, is paramount What we often do instead, and it makes sense because we're in a crisis situation, we focus heavily on the clinical side. Be sure you have enough therapists, which you need. Be sure you have enough physicians, psychiatrists, you can get the medications. All of that is critical. There is no question. But we have to have both and here. We have to have the clinical resources, but we must look upstream to the public health resources as well. And would you say that that's particularly true as you think about the different stressors and the unique mental health needs of subpopulation groups? And I wondered if you had any experience with that in terms of different groups, including first-generation students, Black students, the LGBTQ plus community. How do you sort of look at that from your perspective? One of the greatest things about a college campus is it is diverse. And when you think about a young adult's experience coming to college, it is probably the first time that they have lived with a group that is completely different than who they are. No matter where they come from, you are going to go to a college and they're going to be people from different parts of the world, different parts of the country, have different religions, are different race, ethnicities, have different wealth. Maybe they have parents that went to college, didn't go to college. All of a sudden, you're living in diversity. And when you think about the United States, at least, go by zip code, we're not that diverse. I mean, we're diverse as a country, but people really sort, sadly, into zip codes based on race, ethnicity, based on wealth, et cetera. So this is the opportunity. This is the four years when you are forced to be with each other and to learn how to live in a way we call engaged pluralism, where you are pluralistic and engaged, not assimilating people to one way of living and not segregating people in their own little groups, but rather be pluralistic and be engaged. That is really a great vision for creating a young adult who can create that kind of society subsequently. Unfortunately, 
it is super hard. And what is very difficult about it, particularly as you pointed out, is for subgroups who feel come to campus feeling as if I don't belong. You know, my parents didn't go to college. I don't have a car of my own. I've never eaten this kind of food before. I don't really speak that language as my first language. I never played athletics before. All of those things that can come and be associated with being the first one in your family to go to college or coming from a different part of the country or coming from a different part of the world or really just having very few financial resources. You may have tremendous cultural resources, but few financial resources really puts people at risk for not feeling engaged pluralistically, but rather feeling isolated, alone, unsupported, don't have their social network around them. So we have to, and and this absolutely bears out in the research, students who are first generation, for students who are low income, students of color, students who are transitioning their gender or sexuality, LGBTQ, they are at higher risk for having mental health conditions in college. And we also need to recognize they are at high risk for not seeking help. Why? It's not because they don't need it. It's because it's not what they used to do. It's scary to go seek help. So I think it behooves the college if we are going to really have this vision of engaged pluralism. We have to meet people where they are. We have to design services, residential life support services, counseling services, orientation. Our academics need to be trained on this to recognize difference and understand that each person, depending on their background, is going to experience the college differently, might need more supports in certain areas, while those people are able to give us supports in other areas. So very pluralistic, as you said. It's a really comprehensive view that you're purporting. And and the president's message is important as well, wouldn't you say, Betsy? Mm -hmm. Oh, the president's message, for sure. I mean, the president's, we speak all the time. And although we think no one listens to us, people on the campus definitely pick up what we're talking about. And paying attention to the idea of engagement, belonging, support services so people don't feel isolated, just simple care. Like even the president showing, I really care about what happens with students here. And I know students here. I think it makes an enormous difference. It's funny. You and I had a conversation once and you were talking about the barriers to being too siloed, right, on campus or assuming that the accountability for this kind of work is with one, say, student affairs group or whatever. Talk a little bit about that. That sounds like something you've been thinking a lot about. Yeah. Well, I think the culture and the community and the sense of belonging on campus is everybody's job. That is kind of the definition of culture. It's our shared experiences and how we feel about them. And so there's no role that doesn't play a part in that. And imagine if you could create a campus in which as people came onto it, whether they're employees or students, they looked around at the artifacts, they looked around at how people are behaving, what the rules are, et cetera, even the physical plant. And they said, wow, I feel like I belong here. I feel like they'll care for me here. I feel like they will, when I leave here, I'm going to be prepared to thrive in the world. That is an awesome vision, too, to imagine that you can actually orchestrate that. And of course, that is definitely not one person's job. It's certainly not the clinician's job or the health center's job. It's all of our job to make campuses feel like we are attending to people's mental health. And this is a place where you will learn how to protect your mental health and even grow it. And it's a, it's a lot of work and it's hard work. 
And it seems to me just through the experience that we've had through the Institute and the interviews I've done, it also is not universally embraced. I think a lot of universities of various profiles have different priorities. It's We're seeing more and more of it. But what would you say about that? Do you feel like this is really this idea of the opportunity for well-being involving all community members on campus? Do you think this is something that's prevalent, emerging? What would you say? You know, I would say it is emerging. I would say that there are, it's difficult to do well. And I think there are missteps one can take in understanding what your goals are when you are doing this work. So for us at Vassar, we know we are trying to be the highest quality liberal arts school college that can do so in a diverse and inclusive setting. That is all about learning. It's about creating young adults who are prepared to learn, to go out and be lifelong learners. So That's really what we're trying to do. We know to allow the proper learning, the engaged pluralistic learning, we know we have to protect and promote people's mental health, and therefore we work on that. It's a means to the larger end, which is about education and learning. That's our mission. I think what can happen in organizations is you can forget sort of what the main purpose is and start to build many extra and maybe not even evidence-based services that ultimately can backfire. Because if you get too clinically oriented or too risk averse, too um, focused on all the tactics of what one can do for mental health without keeping the big picture in mind, you've created a lot of cost. You might not have actually formulated those programs to be evidence-based and driven by what students say they need, but more driven by a profession growing up saying, this is what people need. And you can really waste a lot of resources and make a mess. So I think one of the important, two of the important things is keep the goal in mind that it's really about education and drive it from what the individuals who you're trying to help and support say they need. And that's, that's hard to do. It's very inclusive. It's very student-based. It's really listening to things that sometimes as an administrator, you might not, you're like, oh man, why are we doing that? But I think that really is core to keep the actual student, your goal in mind all the time. A lot of this has to do with policy, right? And that, again, is where you sit as president. I want to talk a little bit about the academic environment because I'm I'm so interested in this because it's a little paradoxical. On one hand, you know, data show that academic stress leads to mental health problems. It also shows that mental health problems impact academic performance. Do you think we should be thinking differently about what is stressing our students out from an academic perspective? Are there sort of historical practices that really need to be rethought? Are we doing enough to think about innovative learning? Because this seems to be a real conundrum. I agree. And I think that the pedagogy and the content, both of the classroom and of the academic pursuit are really fundamental and they should be always undergoing change. In a strong academic environment, you hope that we are constantly questioning ourselves. Are we teaching the right topics? Are we offering the right readings that are going to unlock this topic for these students? Do we know our students and how they learn? Have we thought about the different pedagogies that work for certain students and not other students? How do we link the classroom with the non-classroom part of education? I think all of those questions, a, a good university, a good college, 
and good faculty are constantly questioning themselves and reflecting about it. This is very, very complicated. And again, I think in the classroom, we have something at Vassar that that focuses on an inclusive pedagogy and developing faculty members' confidence and skills and reflection on how to be inclusive in their pedagogy. And it's tricky because you get into all the cultural wars, you get into all the arguments about, you know, how much should I just teach what I always have teach versus is, oh, wait a minute, uh, now 20% of my class is first generation. Do I need to teach differently to inspire them and to unlock for them this academic area? So never an easy issue. Very, I would say it's political. It's also cultural. The policy part of that, I think, is to allow your faculty to really think outside the box, creating the types of forums and supporting their research so that they can ask that added question, not just what am I teaching, but has it been tailored to the students I have here? And am I using a pedagogy that's as inclusive as possible? And also the ways in which we have been teaching over the years may need to be switched up a bit, considering, again, what the numbers are saying. I have two two questions left because I know you've got a very busy day. One, I don't mean to be negative or alarming, but when you think about what students are reporting and your paper bears this out in terms of the prevalence data, the Healthy Minds folks have done a great job on this, but all of these strategies seem pretty urgent considering what students are reporting. Do you have, I know your paper doesn't really get into this, do you have any kind of theories about what's going on with young people? And have you thought about that in terms of your addressment strategies, which we've been talking about today? Yeah, you mean theories in terms of what's going on with young people with this increasing prevalence of a variety of mental health disorders and mental health conditions? Particularly anxiety and depression. Yeah. I think there are a myriad, you know, in terms of theory, what's going on with young people today. There are a myriad of exposures that are different than we had 30 years ago. And it's been steadily increasing. So obviously, one tremendous shift has been the normalization of mental health issues. Today, for a student, at least on Vassar's campus, to walk into the counseling center carries really very little stigma. People talk about their therapist all the time, talk about depression and anxiety. They talk about suicide ideation. This is a speakable topic. Whereas 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know, there was a lot of stigma on getting help. So some of this is kind of the normalization. And I think that's nothing but good that allows people to actually get the help they need. So that's one piece of it. I think another piece of it is the very high risks of communication today. When before the internet and before social media, you could communicate something that someone else really didn't like you for, and that's where it would die. Maybe you broke a friendship. Today, you communicate something that's not appreciated, and that could be read by 10,000 of your friends in 20 minutes. More. It could eventually be viral. It could be seen by millions of people. That level of risk in communication who wouldn't be anxious living in a world like that? You know, the safety to be able to experiment has evaporated to some degree. So I think that is a tremendous, tremendous shift. And then I would put the last um, exposure they face are just the tremendous challenges we have with the inequities across our globe and in our country, the economic inequities alongside the terror coming around with the climate emergency. These are these are really exposures that are larger than any campus that I think frame how nervous and, um, and it's not just students, how nervous and potentially depressed people are in the more uh, generalized area. So lots of reasons. Um, 
what are we doing about that? I think is a great question. I think one thing we do about it is we create a curriculum that responds to today's problems. So we have many courses that are about racial inequity, that are about economic inequity. Where did it come from? Across the curriculum, not just in one department, but across the curriculum, climate change classes. So people can bring some cognitive skills to tackling what are these large global issues and feeling more like maybe they can do something about it. I think also what we're trying to do is in our counseling and in our orientations is make it speakable about what it is to, you know, I'll use the word, but cancel somebody on social media. Like, let's talk about that. Let's make that something that a small group of people can get together and really talk about restoring and restorative practices. That's something that at Vassar we're really trying to develop now is bring into the culture the way to restore when there has been an affront like that. And those are all really difficult, but what great skills for young people to learn. I think people my age could have learned that when we were younger and the world would probably be a better place. So I I remain still hopeful about our future. Yeah. And as you're describing it, I keep thinking if obviously what's driving the anxiety are very legitimate, global, seeming overwhelmingly seeming problems, then one of the strategies in terms of sort of bringing that under control is providing and teaching skills that may allow them to tackle these challenges in their future. Yes. And put them in perspective. We often try to teach about history so that they are not maybe they they can see what's happening today in the long span of history. And that also brings some like, okay, I'm contextualizing this. And that takes time. You don't learn that as your freshman or sophomore year, but we hope by the end of four years, you've gotten that kind of perspective to your thinking about our global future. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's great chatting with leaders like yourself that understand that the skills that these people, young people, they need different skills than we did. So yes. it's, a, it's a very important acknowledgement. One of the things you talk about in your paper, which I was particularly interested in because we're doing some work on this through a survey at the Institute, is how students themselves can get involved in helping their peers in terms of mental health. And you talk about peer support services and some other paraprofessional services that really tracks back to your, I think, concept about opening up you know, accountability and responsibility to the entire community. Talk a little bit about that, if you will. Yeah. Peers just have an enormous impact on each other. We know this. There's nothing new there. And to allow a community to use peer pressure, which can be very devastating for people, but to allow a community to use peer pressure towards being healthy, towards being mentally healthy, that's a great thing. And so engaging students and they ask all the time for a variety of student organizations that can help online organizations, being able to text people. Now you have to be, you know, if you're having a crisis, now you have to be very careful that the people who are trained in receiving such texts or supporting students who are students supporting students need training, they need support, they need supervision. So there are a lot of guardrails around this and you never want to burden those who actually are needing the help too. However, we find the getting the peers involves, involved allows, again, the destigmatization and also really creative ideas. We had a program um, just at the beginning of COVID called Vassar Voices, and it was pitched by a set of students who were living in the dorms to allow people to come to spaces and express like, who are you and what's your history? This was so galvanizing. 
I mean, really, hundreds of students got excited about being part of Vassar Voices because they could express who they are. And then they'd find someone else. Oh, I had that same struggle. And it just makes it more like part of normal life. You're going to talk with each other. It builds community, which I think is a real antidote to poor mental health. Yeah. And it also may address the the treatment gap that you're, you're identifying in your paper and you talked about today as being a major concern. Absolutely. That is so great. So your paper comes out in the next several weeks? I think so, yes. That's terrific. Mental health and college campuses. And again, it was a fantastic resource for us, and I'm sure it will be for many others. Thank you so much, Betsy, for being with us. President Elizabeth Bradley, president of Vassar College, we are so grateful that you came on the show today. Thank you, Marjorie. It was really terrific to talk with you, and I really appreciate all the work that you're doing in this area. Thank you. Take care. You too. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. 